of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly, I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating to some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer, Sir, said I, or, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I open wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, Long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal had ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore? This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, and with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. 
Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady, perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with, with such name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. And the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. But the raven, still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy into fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er she shall press, ah, never more. Then, methought, the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite, and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore, 
quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepenthe and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, Tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never fitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him, streaming, throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. He was born Edgar Poe on January 19, 1809, in Boston. He was the child of David and Elizabeth Poe. Both were traveling actors, but shortly after Edgar was born, his father David abandoned the family, leaving Eliza to raise three children. But it wasn't long before Eliza contracted tuberculosis and spent the last few months of her life in Richmond, Virginia, bound to her bed in declining health. She would die December 8, 1811, at the age of 24. Now Edgar, only two years old, was an abandoned orphan. Abandonment would forever play a role in his life. Though never formally adopted, Edgar was, to use the verbiage of the day, taken in by a childless couple from Richmond, John and Francis Allen. 
They were formerly known as godparents back then, but in today's terms, one could say that the Allens were foster parents. Only weeks after his mother's death, two-year-old Edgar was baptized and given Allen as his middle name, as it was definitely presumptuous to change his last name just a month after his mother's death. John Allen was a man of means. While his wife seemed to be the more pious of the two, John, raised as a Scotch Presbyterian, valued hard work, honesty, and thrift. Two years later, in 1814, the monumental Episcopal Church was built. John would purchase pew number 80 for $340, which was quite a tidy sum in the early 1800s. He was not as present at the church as his wife. He more likely would visit from time to time more as a way of maintaining important business contacts in Richmond. John and Edgar, seemingly from the inception of their relationship, were at each other's throats. No doubt Edgar had developed a distrustful relationship with anyone aspiring to be his father. But John also had his share of misdeeds, having had at least one child resulting from an affair. His own friends described him as a hard man and often unforgiving. And he would regularly remind Edgar that he wasn't his actual son. So what kept Edgar together was the love and devotion of his foster mother, Frances. You could say Poe lived with a chip on his shoulder and looked for ways to stand out among his peers. He was actually quite an athlete, a runner, boxer, and swimmer who often impressed his friends. He developed a love for writing poetry as a young man yet another way to distinguish himself from his foster father. Fear and loss would be a repeating theme in his poetry, as well as other genres of writing in later years. At the age of 17, John Allen agreed to send Poe to the University of Virginia. However, he only made a partial payment of the fees, approximately one-third the cost. He didn't provide the funds for Edgar to pay for his books and equipment to pursue his education. No doubt Alan wanted his son to be industrious in order to pay his own way and come up with the other two-thirds. However, Edgar tried gambling as a way to fill the financial gap, which only made problems worse. As he accumulated $2,000, in gambling debts. Appealing to his foster father for help, John Allen refused, and Edgar left school after only two months. It only deepened the rift between foster father and son. Poe would go back to Boston, the city of his birth, and would publish a book of poems which yielded little money. His creditors were still after him, and as a way of escaping them, he would enlist in the army under the false name Edgar Perry. What's surprising to many is what a good soldier he actually was, and rose to the rank of sergeant major in just two years. 
Now emboldened by his new pursuit, he wonders if a career in the military will help offset his writing on the side. So he appeals to John Allen again, who uses his connections to get him into West Point. What Poe did not account for was the rigorous discipline and routine required to be a successful cadet. After a few months, Poe feels stifled and attempts to receive an honorable discharge from West Point. When none was forthcoming, he simply stopped attending drill, classes, and church services until he is court-martialed. His self-sabotage would often be a hallmark of his life, and it only further angered his foster father, who had used his personal contacts to get him in. After Poe's dismissal, he moved to Baltimore. And there, he would live with several relatives. Among them were his Aunt Mariah Clem and her daughter, Virginia. It was here that Poe began writing short stories, an art form for which he would always be known. Now, writing was not a paying career in the 1830s, so when John Allen dies, Poe is hoping that an inheritance will aid his career in literature. He was surprised to discover that his foster father had left him nothing. Discovering he had more illegitimate children, all of them were recognized in the will, but not Edgar. In his personal writings, Edgar from that point would never use the middle name Allen in his signature, but would use Edgar Poe or Edgar A. Poe instead. After winning a short story contest in which he was published in the newspaper, he was offered a job as an editor for a Southern literary journal. Poe accepted and returned to Richmond. While there, Poe's drinking became a bit of a problem and would lead to friction with the owner and publisher. Part of his duties at the journal would be as a literary critic, and Edgar held nothing back in his criticisms of books and writings that came his way. He believed American literature needed to be held to a higher standard in order to be compared with English literature. So he was fierce in his reviews, earning the nickname the Tomahawk Man for his take-no-prisoners style. Indeed, he would make many enemies as a critic. Meanwhile, Edgar, now alone in Richmond, missing and smitten with his cousin Virginia, persuades her and his Aunt Mariah to move to his home in Richmond. Now, it's unclear whether Edgar's interest in Virginia was entirely romantic or maybe it was just familial, wanting to be a part of a real true family. But she would prove to be a stabilizing force in his life. And controversially, he would marry his cousin Virginia within the year. At the time, he was 27 and she was 13. After leaving his job at the literary magazine in Richmond, the Poes moved to Philadelphia in 1838. This would be a very productive time in Poe's literary career. 
He would join a literary circle there among writers, some of whom he had previously castigated in print earlier in his criticisms. One of these was a fellow literary critic, the Reverend Rufus W. Griswold, a local minister who fancied himself a writer. He would often give great reviews to authors with the understanding that they would return the favor for his projects. It was a practice in the day called puffing. In 1841, Poe learns that Griswold was compiling a book on great American poetry and desperately desired to be included in the anthology. Griswold would include three of Poe's poems in the collection. Then he asked Poe to return the favor by giving his book and anthology a glowing review. And while Poe in his review describes what he does like about the book, also wrote uh, regarding Griswold, quote, He has some talents, but as a critic, his judgment is worthless, simply because reason and thinking are entirely out of Mr. Griswold's sphere. And with that review, Poe had made a lifelong enemy of Rufus Griswold. It seems the only place Edgar wasn't such a difficult personality was at home, as he continually doted on his wife, who now was a young woman, and she being enraptured by her husband, Eddie. In Philadelphia... Poe would work long days as an editor for a magazine. Then he would come home and write his own stories. Though he mostly wrote comedies, and most of those romantic comedies, it was in horror that Edgar showed great mastery and popularity. And at the time, the public seemed to have an unending appetite for such stories. The murders in the Rue Morgue is quite notable because it is now noted as the first detective story in American literature. None other than Arthur Conan Doyle would cite the detective in this story as his inspiration for his creation, Sherlock Holmes. Poe is also considered a pioneer in science fiction writing during this time. He would write such stories as Mask of the Red Death, The Black Cat, The Pit and the Pendulum, The Fall of the House of Usher, and, in 1843, The Telltale Heart. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. <laughs> how then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. 
Object there was none. Passion there was none. I, I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, yes, it was this. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad? Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, so that no light shone out, and, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. <laughs> Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed. And so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man. Indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph to think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were closed, fastened through fear of robbers, and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tim fastening, and the old man sprang up in the bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quiet still and said nothing.
For a whole hour, I did not move a muscle. And in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening, just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently, I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death in approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, Without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a single dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And now have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over acuteness of the senses. Now I say, there, there came to my ears a lull, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I've told you that I am nervous, so I am. 
And now at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with a perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I, I took my visitors all over the house. I, I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues. Well, I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I, I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. 
The ringing became more distinct. It uh, continued and became more distinct. I, I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness until, at length, I, I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt, I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently with a, with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a lull, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles, in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why? Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting, and it grated upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Oh, Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew, they were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought and this I think, but anything was better than this agony, anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer, I felt that I must scream or die, and now, again, hark, louder, 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 villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. Many a night, the Poes would spend time in the parlor singing as his wife Virginia would play the piano. On one such evening, while gathered at home, and Virginia doing her usual musical abilities. She reportedly burst a blood vessel and began to cough up blood, which was the distinctive first sign of tuberculosis. In 1844, Poe decides to move his family to New York City hoping to take advantage of his increasing popularity. A year later, in 1845, Poe would have the greatest year of his career. That January, he would publish The Raven, the poem heard at the beginning of this podcast. It would make him internationally famous. It puts him on the literary map at parties and gatherings, Poe would be urged to regale the gathered audience with a live reading of The Raven. Finally, Poe had received the fame and acclaim for which he had long strove. But this increased fame and recognition also provided him with opportunities to stray. He had become friends with a New York poet, Frances Osgood, a married woman with whom it is believed he had an affair, even as his wife Virginia drew closer and closer to death. Well, now famous, Poe secures the money to buy his own magazine and decides to pick a fight with America's most beloved poet at the time, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, 
often writing scathing things about his work and his method. This self-destructive nature of Poe's would be a repeating refrain in his life. His seemingly endless need to pick fights where there were none, distrust for people of higher class, hatred for John Allen, or a jealousy of a life he believed entitled to, it would be a pattern for him that never ended. Between his scandalous affair and the attacks on Longfellow, all the good the raven had brought him had now been undone. As a gesture towards his wife's health, the family moved now to the countryside outside of New York City. And both Virginia's and even Edgar's health began failing. Poe would accelerate his drinking to a dangerous level. Virginia would die due to tuberculosis in 1847, and Edgar was undone. He accomplished little that year, but in the midst of his grief, he wrote Eureka, an essay about the beginnings of the universe. Some scholars see Poe in this essay as developing the basic concepts for the theory of relativity, but also the Big Bang Theory. Clearly, Poe is reaching, striving to find answers to the vast expanse of space and the uncertainty of life itself. He would engage and quickly abandon a series of relationships with wealthy women. He would eventually attempt suicide at one point. But then just as quickly, his fortunes would shift upward. He found a financial backer who would help him start a magazine. So Poe embarked on a lecture tour, looking for other donors. Now engaged to an old flame from his youth, he wrote his mother-in-law, Mariah, that he would be moving her to Richmond to live with them. Ironically, Poe would die under mysterious circumstances, as mysterious as the stories he wrote. He stopped in Baltimore on September 28, 1849, on his way to New York. But it is here that he seemingly vanished for five days, as his location was unknown. On October 3rd, he is discovered in Baltimore, believed to be excessively drunk, wearing someone else's clothes, and possibly delirious. He is hospitalized, going in and out of consciousness for four days. He dies on October 7th, 1849. He was 40 years old. This led to wild speculation as to what may have really happened to Poe. So far, there are 26 published theories about what may have happened in his death. But it is here that Rufus W. Griswold reinserts himself now into Poe's death and carries out the ultimate revenge. Taking upon himself the task of writing Poe's obituary for the New York Daily Tribune, he makes many assertions that Poe was constantly drunk and even delirious in mental health for a long time. Specifically, he writes this, quote, Edgar Allan Poe is dead. He died in Baltimore the day before yesterday. This announcement will startle many, but few will be grieved by it. The poet was well known, personally 
or by reputation in all this country. He had readers in England and in several of the states of continental Europe, but he had few or no friends. This narrative still carries what most people believe about Poe today. Though many have speculated about Poe's religious beliefs, from atheistic to deistic and everything in between, there is an account of his life that is little told but essential to know. Dr. Hal Poe, a professor of faith and culture at Union University in Tennessee, wrote a spiritual account of his distant relative. You see, Dr. Poe's great-great-grandfather was Edgar's cousin. And in his research, he discovered that five weeks before he died, Edgar found himself at a Sons of Temperance meeting. The temperance movement was anti-alcohol. And Edgar's drinking had been an issue since his wife had become ill years before. At what was, in effect, a revival meeting, Poe came forward to acknowledge Christ as Savior. It was actually reported quite widely at the time, but it is hard to find that today. Though he had many losses in his life, no doubt creating many questions about God, at the end he acknowledged God as creator of the universe and pledged his life to Christ. It's a reminder yet again of the power of the Holy Spirit to draw and woo even a man who had made so many mistakes in life and in death left us with compelling stories and poems. In the end, it seems, the only one more relentless than Poe was God himself. Well, we appreciate you being a part of the Matcast. Please share this with a friend as we want to expand our Matcast family. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at mattcastworld at gmail.com, mattcastworld at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Sound of Fusion. This has been a production of Monumental Ministries. If you'd like more information about our books or our entire archives of the podcast, go to mattministry.com. Thanks for having me over. I had a wonderful time. Ooh.